Revelation chapter 20, we'll be looking at verses 9 and 10 this morning. And the title of the message today is The Problem of Sin Solved. That is uh, probably one of the skeptics' biggest questions or biggest concern about the world, essentially, is if, if there is a God, if He's loving and He created everything, why is it so bad? Why is there uh, death and disease and war and all of the horrible things that happen in the world, uh, cancer, relationship problems, all of these? Why, why, would, why would a loving God allow these things to happen? And I believe the fact of the matter is that the Bible has an answer for that. We may not like to hear the answer, uh, as sinful people, I would guess that most of us don't like to hear the answer. Uh, but the answer is found in the scriptures. And the first thing that we need to realize is that God did not create us to be robots. Uh, that's fairly obvious. Uh, we, we all have decisions to make in life. And sometimes we make good decisions. A lot of times we don't. And the uh, God has designed the world in such a way that it's very obvious that he is the creator, but it's also very obvious that our actions have an impact on the things that happen around us. And the reason why bad things happen is because we do bad things. <laughs> uh, nearly every single thing, if not every single bad thing that is happening in this world somehow butterfly effect comes back to our sin. And it's a very uh, messy world that we live in. And God allows this to happen because he created us to be free thinking beings. And that our actions, in a world in which our actions will, will have consequences. And in this mus messy world, Loving God becomes more and more essential and living for him becomes more and more essential and in fact more and more impactful to the world around us. And so yes, we are free to live in sin. We can do that, but there's going to be consequences. And when we don't do that, when we live in obedience to God, it he and his power becomes very much more uh obvious. And I think that that difference is intended to be that way. That's the way God created it. So uh, the sin in the world is not God's fault. It's our fault. And the message of the scriptures is that God is fixing that problem. He is in the process of completing his solution for sin. And that solution is found in the person of Jesus Christ. He came into this world to die for our personal sins. You and me and every person who lives on this planet had their sin paid for on the cross of Jesus Christ as the God-man. He could do that for us. Nobody else could do that. There's only one person who's ever lived who is qualified. He is God in human flesh. He's qualified to do it and was able to do it, and he did it. In a moment of time, in a, in a moment of history, if we could go back 2,000 years, we could go back to 
Jerusalem and see Jesus Christ on the cross dying for our sins. But he didn't just die. He's not just a martyr. He came back to life showing that he's God, showing that he conquered death, the number one consequence of sin. And through his death, we can have life with him for eternity if we will just simply trust in the grace that he's offering to us. If we just put our faith in that, he will save us and give us eternal life. And so, yes, there's sin in the world, but it's solved in the person of Christ. And not just on a personal level, as amazing as that is, as wonderful as that is, as, as literally life-changing as that truth is, he's coming to do so much more than that. He is coming to literally solve the problem of sin in this world and make life in this world the way that he intended it to be originally. And that's what we're learning about in the book of Revelation. Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ and it is revealing that he is going to solve the problem of sin and giving us literally a timeline of the events that will lead up to the moment in literal history where that problem is going to be solved. And we're getting closer and closer and closer to the, the moment in history where uh, the, this problem will forever be solved this problem of sin in Christianity, biblical Christianity at any rate, is unique in that it offers the solution to the problem of sin. It shows us, it, it demonstrates for us that God is the one who is going to, to solve our problem. Sin isn't God's problem. He fixed the problem. Sin is our problem. And uh, that is, that is the, the beauty and the uniqueness of the biblical message, that God has solved our problem for us. He's, he's the ultimate fixer, if you will. Uh, he's the guy who shows up to fix your broken sump pump. It's not his problem. He just came and fixed it for you. And, and we ought to be grateful to him, not be a skeptic, and hold it against him. Oh, gee, God, why did you create this world the way that you did? Well, gee, Kurt, why do you sin? Why do you disobey the things that are so clear in Scripture? Why do you live that way? I'm here to fix that problem for you. You ought to be grateful. We all ought to be grateful for what he's doing for us. And we ought to be grateful for the book of Revelation that so clearly lays out the future for us. And we can see it in our daily lives, that, it, that the things that God says about this world and about the things that will happen in the future are just as plain as the nose on our face being set up to happen exactly the way that he says they will happen in the scriptures. And I think that's the main reason for the book of, of Revelation. Uh, it is it is to show us the faithfulness of God and the truth of the scriptures and how uh, everything is going to play out. It, it is to give us hope and encourage us in the world in which we are living because it, it might be really bad. It, we may even lose our lives because of the things that we see written in here because we believe them. 
But you know what? That's exactly the way God said it was going to happen. And that ought to encourage us and give us faith uh, in the rest of the things that we see in the scriptures, not just the, the things that are in the future. As we've seen, Revelation one nineteen is a great uh, outline for the book. Uh, God does this a lot in the scriptures that, that we'll find a, literally within the text, the outline for the book. Revelation is no different. Revelation one nineteen, God, Christ told John to write the things which you have seen, chapter one, the things which are chapters two and three, messages to literal churches, and the things which will take place after these things, uh, which primarily are two things, the seven-year tribulation period and this millennial kingdom, well, I guess three things, the tribulation period, the millennial kingdom that we're still looking at this week, the conclusion of it, and then uh, in chapters 21 and 22, what next? What can God do after uh, uh, literally installing himself as king over this world and, and making uh, the world, progressing it towards what life is supposed to be, Christ literally ruling and reigning over the kingdom of the world like he promised he would do in the Old Testament. Well, what else can you do for us? And, God, and the book of Revelation tells us, well, you, you haven't seen anything yet. It's going to get even better than the way it is in the kingdom. That's the eternal state. That's the way it'll be forever. Chapters 21 and 22. We find ourselves in the chapter 20, looking at the millennial kingdom and the great white throne judgment. This this is kind of a, a timeline that is really what the the book of Revelation is is all about. It's got a, a very little bit to say about the church age, where, what we where we find ourselves today, living in chapters two and three. Messages to churches. That's what we need. We need those messages. They're primarily messages to tell people how to uh, fix yourself, <laughs> how what Christ has done for you, so that you can live in obedience to Him in areas of your life that you need to correct in order to, to be living for him. Messages to the churches, very much like Ephesians, Romans, Galatians, all, all of the epistles. Uh, and then after that, we see John is taken to heaven, very reminiscent of uh, the way that we as believers will one day, someday, any day, at any moment, be caught up to heaven, meet the Lord in the air, taken back to the Father's house. That's very similar experience to what John had in Revelation chapter 4. He's taken to heaven. Uh, notice before this tribulation period happens, it happens uh, to John in the book of Revelation in the timeline. Uh, and then chapter 6 begins this tribulation period. It begins with the seal judgments, then the trumpet judgments, then the bowl judgments, all uh, seven-year period of history we know. The second half is mentioned in Revelation after uh, the Antichrist is set up, his image is set up in the temple. Then for three and a half years, it specifically says Times are going to be very, very difficult for those who live on the earth. Uh, and 
we get a seven-year tribulation primarily from the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 9 describes a seven-year period where times will be very difficult, and then Christ will come again. That's what we studied or saw in Revelation 19 at the conclusion of the seven-year period of of tribulation. Uh, Christ will come again to the earth. Satan will be bound and will be cast into the abyss for 1,000 years. We read that again. Uh, Revelation 20, mentioning the thousand years, six times. It says the thousand years, the thousand years, the thousand years. And uh, then we have seen the last couple of weeks that Satan at the end, he's been bound during this 1,000 year period in the abyss, not the lake of fire. It's a different place, the abyss. Uh, He's been kept there for this thousand years and then he will be released for a short time. Well, how long is that time? I don't know. Short. <laughs> That's what it says. A short period of time. Probably not very long, <laughs> as by definition. <laughs> Probably not very long in comparison to the thousand years, I, I would say. I don't know what the exact time is. It doesn't say. But in that time, he's going to gather an army together, an army of people that is like the sand of the seashore, So many people that you can't even count it are going to side with Satan against Christ. Literally, physically, they're ruling in Jerusalem. They will rebel against him and try to uh, take him out again. And uh, that's where we kind of left off last time. And we'll look at some more uh, information about this and kind of draw some conclusions finally as to why this is happening. Why, why are we even having this kingdom? I think that's very important for, uh, I don't just think it, it's described in the scriptures as being a very important period of time. And there are some reasons for that, uh, primarily to show that that. God is taking Satan off the throne of this world and he is accomplishing exactly what he created the world, the purpose of the world to be. He is going to do it for us. He created the world and that it would be ruled over by a man. A man would have dominion over the world. That person was supposed to be Adam in the garden, ruling over the world. Adam sinned. Satan usurped his place. That's the world in which we are living in today. Uh, Satan is the prince and power of the air and of this world. Uh, But God is going to have the world be the way he created it to be. And that will happen in this 1,000 year period. That is why uh, some of these ideas, where did my cursor go? It's still moving around, and I don't see it. Ah, very frustrating. You're not supposed to be looking at that. I wanted to skip that. Ah, So we'll just go real fast. Close your eyes. (laughs) That's why some of these ideas are heretical. 
ideas about the kingdom. I don't, I don't really know any nice way to say it. Post-millennialism, we've seen, we've talked about this idea that we as sinful people are going to create a kingdom and a world that's so great that Jesus will then come again. Once we get it good enough, then Jesus will come again. Uh, and then the end will come after we sinful people have established the kingdom. That's very contrary to what we see in the scriptures, very contrary to what we read about in Revelation 20 verses 9 and 10 in particular, that people, even living under perfect circumstances, will still live in sin against God. And that's exactly contrary this amillennialism, that there is no thousand-year kingdom, probably even more heretical than post-millennialism is this idea that there isn't a kingdom and the world's just going to keep going on and on and on the way it is and we'll just have this sinful world forever. And that is very contrary. If there's no kingdom on the earth, then Satan is always going to be the prince and power of the world and we're just stuck here in this forever. And that obviously is very problematic to say the least. Ugh. And so last time we saw that humanity is sinful. We looked at the this end of the millennial kingdom there in verses uh, 7 through 10. We only made it through seven and eight last time. We saw that Satan is going to be released for that short period of time at the end of the millennial kingdom, uh, showing, of course, that this thousand-year period, it's a literal time period, literally a thousand years. Uh, you go back in time a thousand years from today, and it's uh, April 2nd, 1,023. Skip forward a thousand years, it's today. April 2nd, 2023, same length of time, a thousand year period of time. John knows very well how to describe uh, indefinite periods of time. Now, I need to, I can't scroll through my notes. Boy, very frustrating. There it is. It came back. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> uh, yeah, John knows how to describe periods of time. He's done it several times in the book of Revelation. The two witnesses, if you remember them, back from chapter 11, they will prophesy, it says, for 1,260 days. Uh, when they are done prophesying, they'll be killed by the Antichrist or by his minions, and they will lay in the streets for three and one half days. Authority is given to the Antichrist for 42 months, Revelation chapter 13. So John has described some periods of time already. He knows very well how to describe a, a length of time in this kingdom is going to last for a thousand years. So if we don't believe that, literally, then we're left with, uh, well, well, what about the two witnesses? 
How about them prophesying for 1,260 days? Does that mean a week? Uh, does that mean it's not really a real period of time? Those aren't real people. Uh, how about them being dead for three and a half days? Is that symbolic of something else? And then you can see the, the slippery slope that you get on once you start uh, s making all of this symbols or symbolic of something else, then you become the author of Scripture rather than God himself. Obviously, the best way to take this is as it's presented. Yes, there are figures of speech. Yes, he uses poetic language and these kinds of things, but he has a literal meaning behind it. And these periods of time are very, very literal every other place that we see them. There's no reason to think that it's, that it's not here also. Uh, so Satan will be released, that indicating he has been bound. He certainly is not bound today, we see him and his activities very clearly and in, as we talked about in Sunday school on every level of society, very clear that Satan is still active in this world. So therefore, we are not living in the kingdom as is described in, in the scriptures. Uh, and we talked a little bit about Gog and Magog. We see that in verse 8, uh, that description. He's not describing Ezekiel 38 and 39 here. He's just using it as kind of a, a euphemism, if you will, or a figure of speech. This great battle at the end of the millennial kingdom will remind people of the battle that happened, I believe, during the tribulation period, the last great war that took place on this earth is Gog and Magog, as it's described in Ezekiel 38 and 39. So John uses that same language to describe this great battle at the end of the millennial kingdom. People will be familiar with that. And in this case, it's describing people coming from all all around the world. And this really does show us how horribly sinful Humanity is that even living under these perfect circumstances, they're still going to rebel, nearly perfect circumstances. They're still going to be to rebel against God and uh, that we, we need an answer for that. And so that's what we'll look at today. This problem of sin solved, we'll see Jerusalem, a literal Jerusalem, this judgment that's going to take place, and then finally the justification in this case, the justification for uh, the punishment that is going to be dealt out to Satan. Revelation 20 and verse 7 says, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and, and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So notice that we... Uh, or we come to this idea of Jerusalem, the, the beloved city. 
that is described here. They, verse 9, they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down and devoured them. This language, these people, these people who are rebelling against God at the end of the millennial kingdom, in spite of Jesus Christ literally being there, uh, resurrected people living throughout this entire thousand-year period, uh, people living in peace over the entire earth. That's what is described in other places about this millennial kingdom. People will uh, beat their weapons into farming implements is how it's described during this time. We're not going to be needing uh, weapons to kill one another. We'll need all that metal and, and things to reap all the food that's going to be here. Very different from what we're living in today. But notice uh, what happens. People are still going to rebel under these circumstances. In verse 9, they, the they is the, 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 this great army that Satan has gathered together like sand of the seashore, verse 8. They came, up on, they came up on the broad plain of the earth. This, this uh, idea of coming up to a place is very reminiscent of the language that we see describing Jerusalem in other places in the Bible. Going up to Jerusalem, whichever direction they're coming from. People come from the other side of Jordan, they go to the west and they go up to Jerusalem. When they're coming from the north, they go up to Jerusalem, not like us going up to Traverse City, indicating we're going north. We're not talking about elevation when we say we're going up north. We're talking about moving in the direction of north on a map. That's not what the Bible means when it says they went up to the broad plain. That's an indication to us that it's speaking of Jerusalem. Luke 18, 31, speaking of Jesus, it says, Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished, speaking of the, the week leading up to his crucifixion. So he said these things very uh, close to the day that is today on our calendars, Palm Sunday, he said they were going up to Jerusalem to have these things be accomplished. Paul used the same kind of language in Galatians 1.15. He says, but when God, who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor, verse 17, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Paul mentions going up to Jerusalem. And, and there are, I could, we could spend the entire hour listing the examples from the Bible of people going up to Jerusalem, just as it says here in verse 9 of Revelation 20, they came up on the broad plain of the earth. And that's the translation that the New American Standard Bible uses, uh, describing it as the broad plain of the earth. It's probably a better uh, translation would be the breadth of the land. 
they came up on the breadth of the land. That word for uh, land there or earth as it is translated in the New American Standard, it says earth. That also can be land. It's the, the Greek term. Gi is the Greek term. Eretz is the Hebrew term that is used throughout the Old Testament that is translated as earth or land. Uh, when we speak of the land of Israel or many, many times in the Old Testament, it's just simply called the land. It uses the Hebrew term Eretz, which is the equivalent of the Greek, the Greek term Gi here that we see. Uh, you can see that in the Septuagint, this Greek term for Gi uh, or the Greek term Gi being translated as land as a reference to the land of Israel. That's the term they use. So again, more evidence. I will grant you, this is circumstantial evidence, but it begins to pile up a little bit here as we're going. Uh, circumstantial evidence in spite of what the media likes to tell us when it fits their narrative anyway. Circumstantial evidence is very powerful and able to convict someone in a court of law. We're making the case that what is being described here is this army coming against the nation of Israel, the place where Jesus is. A literal Jerusalem is what's being described. More evidence that this is a literal kingdom upon the earth that will literally last for a thousand years. This idea of them coming up on the breadth of the land. The land was promised to the nation of Israel. Genesis 17, 8, God says to Abraham, I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, notice this, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Does God mean what he says when he says things? When he tells Abraham that this land is going to be yours and your descendants forever? Does he mean just for a little bit of time? Or does he mean forever? I think he means forever. And I will be their God. God will be the God of the Israelite people, whether they like it or not. He's going to be their God. According to Genesis 17, 8. And a lot of them don't like it <laughs> right now that the God of the Bible is their God. The God who came in human flesh to die for the sins of the world, he is their God. And they don't like it, but they will. One day they will. Uh, and notice this next line that is here. Not only did they come up on the broad plain of the land or the breadth of the earth, they surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. We have seen this language already. This camp of the saints was being described in Revelation 14, where it said, uh, and notice all, all of the language that's here when we hear about this uh, kind of a, a camp of the saints, if you will. Revelation 14 was looking forward to the end of the tribulation period. It says, then I looked and behold, the lamb, that's Christ, was standing on Mount Zion. Mount Zion is uh, Bible ease for Jerusalem. 
When you, we see Mount Zion, it's speaking of Jerusalem. Verse 14, again, or chapter 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000. You remember the 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, Jewish people, uh, the, the 144,000 Jewish witnesses who will go out during the tribulation period and be witnesses for, for Christ. Uh, so the Lamb is standing on Mount Zion, that's Jerusalem. Jesus is in Jerusalem, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb, and no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. This camp of the saints that's being described here could very likely, uh, this camp of the saints in Revelation 20 could very likely be these 144,000 who are there with the Lord during the, uh, this kingdom period. Uh, it, it may not be. It, they may be there. It may be more uh, saints who are there. But nevertheless, this passage in Revelation 14 describes Christ at the end of the tribulation period, literally being in Jerusalem there with believers. And there's nothing to indicate that that won't carry on through the kingdom period, Christ literally being there. In the beloved city is also mentioned. Again, we could spend an hour going through the Bible, looking at all the places that describe Jerusalem as the beloved city, Psalm 78, 68, uh, speaking of God, that he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved. Again, Mount Zion equals Jerusalem. Uh, Psalm 87, 2, our call to worship this morning, we saw that. And the fact of the matter is the Bible makes very clear that the Messiah will rule from the city of Jerusalem as is being described here, going up to this place, up on the breadth of the land. Uh, there's a camp of the saints. It's a beloved city. The Messiah will rule from the city of Jerusalem. Don't take my word for it. Let's take Isaiah's word for it. Isaiah 24 and verse 23. Then the moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and his glory will be before his elders. Zechariah 14, 9 says, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name, the only one. All the land will be changed into a plain. Huh. The breadth of the land. Zechariah tells us all the land will be changed into a plain. From Geba to Rimmon, south of Jerusalem. But 
Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site from Benjamin's gate as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. People will live in it and there will no longer be a curse for Jerusalem will dwell in security. The Lord is going to be the king over all the earth and he will rule from Jerusalem. There's going to be geographic changes in the land exactly as what is being described here at the end of the kingdom period and the people rebelling against Christ, going with Satan, going up to Jerusalem, up to Israel, where Jesus is, where the saints are to try to kill them. But they're going to be dealt with. Dealt with with fire from heaven, which is an obvious sign of judgment. The exact same thing happened to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Back in Genesis 19, in verse 24, because of their wickedness, again, this isn't God's fault. God is fixing the problem. You have, you have cities that are so vile and uh, uh, filled with rage against God and any person who would dare try to maintain some level of normalcy uh, like Lot was. And if you go back and read Genesis 19, that they want to literally tear his house down to engage in their immoral activities. Uh, Not sure if you're paying attention to the news, but step by step by step, that's the direction our country is going in. And lo and behold, uh, doesn't Jesus somewhere say that as in the times of Noah, uh, so it will be in the end times? He makes reference to Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot in the, that it's going to be the same in the end times as it was back then. And then Genesis 19 in verse 24, then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And that's precisely what's going to happen again at the end of the kingdom period when people rebel against the Lord, go with Satan, as is described in verse 10 or or verse 9, fire came down from heaven and devoured them. They will be consumed. The, The rebellion is going to be finally and fully dealt with, very similar to uh, what we see Elijah doing in uh, one of my favorite chapters of the Bible, 1 Kings 18, probably, (laughs) probably not a popular choice for a favorite chapter of the Bible. I'm not sure it's my favorite, but it's definitely one that stands out if you're familiar with that. If you're not, I would encourage you to read 1 Kings up to that point and read it and get the context. Elijah dealing with the prophets of Baal who were Israelite priests, essentially, who were leading the people in false worship. Elijah had a solution. I've got an idea. Let's have a contest. Let's see whose God is actually real. Uh, We'll set up this sacrifice and you can call on your gods. You can call on Baal and see if he'll burn this... uh, sacrifice up with fire and they they start their pagan worship they even cut themselves and who knows what else they do elijah kind of taunts them hey maybe Baal's in the bathroom 
yell louder. And so they do. Uh, you got to love Elijah. And then, of course, nothing happens. And Elijah simply calls on the Lord. Lord, reveal yourself to these people. Make your name known, essentially. Show them that you are the true God of Israel and the God of the universe. In verse 38 of 1 Kings 18, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Elijah, he, he made it extra special that he had them pour water over this thing, <laughs> fill up the trenches with water, soak it in water like it is outside right now around here. Uh, if fire came down from heaven and licked up all the water out of the field next to us, that'd be pretty obvious. That was God who did that. That's what Elijah does. Verse 39, when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. They were dealt with. The rebellion was finally and fully consumed and dealt with. And that is exactly what God is going to do at the end of the kingdom period. This literal thousand years where he's literally ruling and reigning from Jerusalem in literal Israel on this literal physical earth that we are living and walking around on. This will happen. Satan will be released at the end. He will gather his great army and they will come up against God, against Christ, literal Israel and Jerusalem, and they will be consumed with fire finally and fully and the devil himself will be finally dealt with in verse 10 it says and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever notice this mention of the devil and what he does uh, again in verse 10 one more time in case we didn't get it that the devil is here in this world to deceive us. It's mentioned in his uh, going away party, if you will. Verse 10, Revelation 20. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire. The, the devil doesn't come in uh, red with big teeth and horns and looking really scary and then try to convince you to rebel against God. That wouldn't work. <laughs> that would just scare you and probably make you run the other way. And what does the Bible say when we run away from God uh, and we, we run away from the devil and run to God? What happens? The devil leaves us alone and God draws near to us, according to the book of James. So no, he doesn't want to scare you and make you run away. He wants to make, come on, it's going to be great. This is going to be fun. It's, you're going to be satisfied. You're gonna, all your dreams and wishes are going to come true if you will just follow me. He is an angel of light. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, verse 13, Paul equates false prophets and false teachers with Satan himself being angels of light. A false teacher doesn't come up in uh, 
wolves' clothes and tell you, hey, uh, I know what the Bible says, but uh, I know what the Bible says about salvation, that it's by faith alone. Yeah, don't believe that. You got to do something, man. Come on, it's obvious. That's the way we get ahead in life, right? We, we have to do things. We got to earn it. You got to earn your keep. God's the same way as your boss at work. That's not what they say. <laughs> they come as an angel of light and they make religion sound good and they make doing good things sound good and that's how you get ahead in life. And oh, by the way, give me money. Come to my church. Tell all your friends to come to my church. We'll pray for you. We'll have nice meals and we'll be nice to you. But make sure you give. You got to give. That's a false prophet. That's a false teacher. Paul calls them out. For such men are false prophets, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder. For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Their end will be very similar, we're going to see uh, next time, or when we come to Revelation next time, the end of the false prophets is going to be very similar, uh, the same as it is for Satan. So Satan is he's not a, an open deceiver. He's an angel of light. That's what deception is. When, uh, when enemy soldiers want to get behind enemy lines they, uh, to uh, harm their adversaries, they don't come with horns blaring and lights flashing. Hey, here we are. We're over here. We're coming to take all your supplies and kill your women and children. No, they do it deceptively. They sneak. Satan is exactly the same thing. He sneaks, he deceives us. And so therefore we need to know the truth. 2 Timothy 3.13 Speaking of uh, today, <laughs> if you will, warning Timothy ahead of time, but evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse. Are things getting going from bad to worse today? I, I think so. Deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have not you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. We have to continue learning from God's word and applying it to our lives. Otherwise, we will be open to deception, period. That, I mean, that is just all there is to it. There is no other way to describe it. If you're not learning the truth of Scripture, you will be deceived by someone. And our enemy is still in the world today. We don't struggle against flesh and blood. We struggle against Satan and his uh, minions, his methods. That's why we need the armor of God described in Ephesians chapter 6. But notice that the devil is thrown into this lake of fire and brimstone, a literal place where Satan is going to go. We've already seen this talked about with the Antichrist and the false prophet at the end of the tribulation period. 
I understand these can be confusing. We're living in the church age now. We'll be raptured when that comes to a conclusion, hopefully sometime soon. Sometime shortly after that, a seven-year tribulation period will begin. Then Christ will come again to the earth, establish a 1,000-year kingdom period. And then at the end of that, what we're learning about today will happen. Satan will be released. He'll lead a rebellion. He will be burned up with fire. And then he will be cast into the lake of fire. As I mentioned, it's been mentioned already, the Antichrist and false prophet will be cast into the lake of fire at the end of the tribulation period. They're the first two to go there. Uh, and all unbelievers are eventually destined for this place, according to Revelation 14, verses 9 through 11. This should be very sobering to us uh, when you read this, Revelation 14, looking forward all the way to past even where we are today in our timeline in Revelation, all the way past that, says, Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast and his image who, and whoever receives the mark. Same language, same description as the place where Satan will go at the end of the kingdom period says all those who worship the Antichrist will have exactly the same fate and we're going to see next time that all unbelievers have the same fate as well this is something obviously that uh, jesus was very concerned with in fact if there is one person from the bible or the one person who says the most about a literal hell and a literal punishment for sin for eternity it's Jesus Christ himself. So one of the main avenues of uh, deception that Satan is using today in the church is this idea that hell and eternal punishment for sin is not a real thing or a real place. That is completely false, completely contrary to the scripture and heretical at, to give it the best term we can possibly say. Jesus says in Luke 12, verse 4, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. That's God. God has the authority to do that. I tell you, fear him. We ought to be afraid of this place. We ought to be afraid of this place for the souls of the people that we love because it's a literal place. And if they don't trust in Christ in this life, they're headed there. Not my words, God's words in the scripture. And as much as I, you know, so I said that the, uh, I've said before, the beauty of verse by verse teaching is that you got to cover all these topics. If it were up to me, hell wouldn't even be in the Bible. Uh, we, we, uh, life would just end, uh, or whatever. 
Everybody would believe. Whatever excuse you want to come up with. But that's not what the Bible says. That's not how it's going to be dealt with. It will, because that would be an incomplete dealing with the problem. God is dealing with the problem completely, utterly, for eternity. His way is a lot better than our way. Satan will be dealt with. This satanic trinity uh, will end up in the lake of fire. The satanic trinity being Satan himself, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. They all have their destination as being one of complete defeat. Like John says in 1 John 4, 4, speaking to believers, you are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Uh, This being the perfect demonstration of it, God is greater than Satan. He's greater than all the enemies of Satan. All the billions of them that are in this world today, God is greater and more powerful than all of them. He will deal with them. He will deal with Satan himself at the end of the kingdom period. He will be judged and found wanting. And he will go into the lake of fire for eternity. And so this, this I believe, is written to us to encourage us in the world today. Satan is going to be dealt with. He is a defeated foe. We can live in, uh, in faith in the God who created this world because he is going to solve this problem of sin. So why is Satan released in the first place? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons for that. And the one is to show the sinfulness of mankind, which we sort of hinted at last time also. Uh, These people are living in a time, again, when Christ is literally there. Uh, It's Garden Garden of Eden-esque, if you will, across the entirety of the earth. And yet they will still rebel when given the opportunity. It shows the absolute sinfulness of mankind. And it would seem that God is, is revealing this to us so that we can know this ahead of time to show us today how truly sinful we are. Even under these perfect circumstances in the future, people are still sinful. It was that way in the beginning. God created the world. Adam and Eve were literally the only two people there. It was very good. And they sinned under perfect circumstances. And we think in our world today, oh, I, I wouldn't have done that. I would have, I would have just done what God said. No, you wouldn't. <laughs> You're, you prob- Adam was directly created by God. Uh, you weren't. You, you're not the same as Adam. You're not as good as he was, in fact. You would have sinned faster than he did. The people in the future living under these quote-unquote perfect circumstances. No Satan. Uh, they can't say, oh, that little devil on my shoulder made me do it. No, that, doesn't, that excuse doesn't cut it. You did it. You are the one that's responsible. This shows us that very clearly, and it emphasizes our need for Christ. We're hopeless, helpless without Christ. Uh, It shows us that we aren't building a kingdom. These people are living in the kingdom, in a perfect kingdom, the kingdom created by Christ, and they still mess it up. What makes us think we are going to create a kingdom 
for Christ to come again to, that's insane. That's not paying attention to the scriptures. We aren't earning our salvation. We can't earn our salvation. We can't keep the world good when it's perfect, like it will be in the kingdom. How are we going to earn our salvation? We can't keep our salvation through our good works. Our good works are worthless, as demonstrated by what's happening at the end of the kingdom period. We're not even adding to our salvation, saying uh, God paid for dinner, we'll uh, give the tip. None of that. That's ridiculous. You can't do anything. You can't add anything to it. We're pathetic, sinful creatures in need of the Savior. And he is the one who will save us. So why is there eternal punishment? I think there's eternal punishment because we are created to enjoy God forever. That's the way he created us to be. So we're either going to enjoy his presence forever, or we're going to pay the penalty with our eternal souls. And again, this is given to us as a warning passages. God does that a lot. There are a lot of warning passages in the Bible, warning about the consequences of sin, uh, warning about all kinds of all kinds of things. This is another one of those. Hey, hello, uh, people are going to go to the lake of fire for eternity. Life is very precious. We have this life to live for the Lord. We have this life to uh, accept Him, accept salvation by faith in Him, or our destiny is to the lake of fire, to this eternal punishment. If we didn't have this hanging over our head, there would be no sense of urgency in the gospel. And in the importance of the gospel, we have to get this right. It has to be right. This is the consequence if we get it wrong. What is happening to Satan and what we'll see is happening to all unbelievers in verses 11 through 14. So there are some reasons for why there is an eternal punishment for sin. If we don't, if we don't understand the eternal punishment for sin, we don't understand the, what sin actually is and how it separates us from holy God. But the fact of the matter is that we can know for sure. That's the importance of the gospel that's demonstrated in this. We don't have to leave this place wondering. We don't have to have any sense of doubt when we give the gospel to people about whether or not this person could be saved or whether or not they will be saved forever if they believe this, uh, we can be exactly sure because it is an objective fact. The Word tells us that it is. The Word tells us over and over how we can be saved by believing in Christ, trusting in Christ. One, uh, One necessity, one thing that has to happen, that is you, trusting in what Christ has done for you on the cross. It says it in the Bible about 200 times, 100 times in the gospel of John. John doesn't need to tell us in every verse of Revelation how to be saved because he already told us in almost every verse of the first book that he wrote, the gospel of John. He doesn't need to repeat that. They go together. Believe in Christ for salvation exclusive of works, faith alone, 
in God, Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, God in human flesh. That's the message of the Gospel of John. Uh, Acts 16.31, Paul told the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, you and all your household, after they hear about the gospel of salvation through faith in Christ. They will believe also, and they will be saved. We won't take all the time to show you where the Bible tells you that you can be saved by faith alone in Christ alone, but we can be sure. We can be sure because, as we've, you've seen this before, Scripture says so. The Bible tells us 200 times we're saved by faith alone in Christ alone. It's based on the ultimate sacrifice, 1 John 2, 2. He didn't just die for some of the sins of the world. He died for all of the sins of the world. You don't have to wonder whether Christ died for your sin. Oh, my sin is, I personally have heard this. God would never forgive me for X, Y, and Z sins. He can't. He couldn't. How could he? Well, the Bible tells us that he did. He died for the sins of the world, not for ours only, but for the entire world. 1 John 2.2, 2. everybody, even Hitler's sins were paid for on the cross, if you can believe that. Uh, they actually were. 1 John 2.2. 2. That helps us to be sure. We don't have to wonder whether our sins were paid for. They were, according to the scriptures. Salvation rests on Christ. It doesn't rest on me. It rests on his shed blood alone. I don't have to wonder about that. I don't have to wonder if I need to keep some set of rules and regulations. That's not what salvation rests on. It doesn't rest on me. It rests on him. And that's the one I'm putting my faith in. And everyone is invited. You don't have to wonder whether or not you've been invited. That's heresy. You don't have to wonder whether or not your neighbor has been invited. That's heresy. He has. She has. Everyone has. Revelation twenty-two seventeen. the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. It doesn't cost you anything. It cost Christ everything. It cost God everything. He paid the whole price. That's why he says on the cross, it is finished because he paid all the price. So we can be sure it is an, salvation is an objective fact. It's not a, I wonder, is my good going to outweigh my bad at the end? Did I go to the right church? Did I say enough prayers? Did I um, murder? Uh, <laughs> I didn't murder too many people. None of that. None of that counts. It's whether or not you have trusted in Christ. It is an objective fact. Scripture tells us it's based on the ultimate sacrifice. It rests completely on Christ, and you and everybody else on this planet is invited to believe and so we can be sure the problem of sin has, is solved in Jesus Christ. Step one has taken place. He's gone to the cross. He's died. He's uh, risen again on the third day. That's step one. Step two will be the rapture of the church. He takes us out as is his normal uh, mode of operation. He saved the eight before the flood came. He pulled Lot out before uh, fire and brimstone rained on 
Sodom and Gomorrah. He will take the church out. Then his wrath will be poured out on this earth. And then he will come again. Step three, he will come again to this earth, establish his kingdom, and he will rule for a thousand years. And then at the end, Satan will be dealt with. He will finally judge all of sin and we will go into eternity with no sin forever. The problem of sin has been solved in the person of Christ. Let's go to him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for the forgiveness that we have in Christ. I thank you for all of these people, and I thank you for uh, their precious lives. I pray that we would go away from this place motivated to serve you and motivated to live for you each moment of the day. I just pray that your Holy Spirit would go with us and encourage us in that and that you would protect us from the danger that is all around us, the physical danger and the spiritual danger that uh, wants to entrap us and just help us to live for you each moment. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.